Hello, everyone, and thank you once again for listening to Cassus Belli, the podcast about war, history, and geography. In this installment, we will cover the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan up until the end of the 2009 troop surge. As always, a footnoted transcript of this episode and all scripted episodes can be found at CassusBellyPodcast.com. And don't forget to tell your friends that each episode is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. Just search for Cassus Belly. Anyway, let's begin Graveyard of Empires Part 3, Classic Blunders. On July 23, 2007, Muhammad Zahir Shah lay on his deathbed in Kabul. He was 92 years old, and he was the last king of Afghanistan. It is with him that our story starts this week, because he represents so much of the lost promise of Afghanistan. Through him we can see a faint glimmer of what the country may have been. If it were not for the coup that saw him deposed in 1973, and set the stage for the coming Soviet invasion, perhaps the subsequent decades of unending violence could have been avoided. Zahir Shah, as he is commonly called, was born on October 14, 1914, to Muhammad Nadir Shah, and was a direct descendant of the great Ahmad Shah Durrani. He spent his youth abroad, studying in France where he became fluent in French and developed a taste for all things European. By the time he left France in 1930, he had thoroughly absorbed European culture and Western ways of thinking, and seems to have genuinely wanted to impart that on his home country. Upon his return, he was enrolled in the infantry college and assumed a commission in the army. His career would not last long, though, for in 1933 his father would be assassinated and Zahir would assume the throne. Having been coronated at age 18, Zahir Shah had not fully come into his own yet, and for much of his first decade in power, his uncles pulled most of the levers. By the 1940s, though, he had significantly more influence and began to exert that influence abroad. For the next two decades, he would spend enormous amounts of time and effort trying to get foreign investment into Afghanistan. He implored the Soviet Union to build airports and grant military equipment. In fact, Bagram Airfield, very much the hub of American activity today, was constructed by Soviet engineers during this time. He reached out to the United States for irrigation and infrastructure projects and generally tried to improve Afghanistan's lot. Though very little changed in most of the country, there were signs of progress. His undoing would come when he changed the constitution, though. In his attempt to improve governance and improve the lives of women, he endangered the power base of his brother-in-law and cousin, Muhammad Daoud. For years, Daoud had served at King Zahir's side as prime minister and as general of the army. But when the king attempted to reform the constitution and bar royal family members from government, Daoud made his move to preserve his power. Zahir was ousted from the throne and fled to exile in Italy. Daoud, now Prime Minister, initiated his attempt to consolidate power, but instead set in motion decades of bloodletting and civil war. Under Zahir Shah's reign, Daoud had associated with the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, or PDPA, but he had never had complete control over it. Since its foundation in 1965, it always had two fairly independent wings. On the right sat the Parchamists, who represented the more nationalist element of the party and were generally loyal to Daoud. On the left, however, sat the Marxist element of the party known as the Kalk faction. Now in power, Daoud was busy trying to curry favor with the United States and move away from Moscow. The Kalk faction found this unacceptable and stormed Daoud's palace in Kabul, where he was promptly executed. It had been only five years since King Zahir was ousted. 
Following Daoud's murder, Nur Taraki, the head of the Kalk faction, assumed the prime ministership. As his deputy, he named Daoud's old lieutenant Barbat Kamal in order to appease the right wing of his faction. This new regime would signify a marked change of course for Afghanistan's foreign policy. Whereas before Daoud's death, the government mostly sought to play the U.S. and Afghanistan off of each other for gain. This new Marxist regime, however, would certainly align themselves with Moscow. In the subsequent months, the Taraki government advocated Red Army assistance and bringing the communist revolution to the outlying tribal areas where they quickly stirred trouble. The highly independent, semi-nomadic, and Islamic tribesmen found very little appealing in the communist message and resisted it. All the while, Karmal was plotting a parchamist coup. Taraki's ally, Hafiz Allah Amin, received word of this and initiated a purge, removing Karmal and his compatriots from power. By June 1979, with the Taraki government under pressure from rival factions and an increasingly violent Islamic extremist hinterland, the Soviet Union dispatched troops to secure Bagram Airfield and Kabul. The arrival of Red Army soldiers in Kabul prompted the Carter administration to begin supporting the Islamic insurgents, or Mujahideen, with non-lethal support. And so the first shoots of the Soviet invasion had sprung. The official presence of Soviet troops in Afghanistan only inflamed the Islamic rebels and caused them to step up their efforts to attack the government, which triggered the arrival of yet more Russian soldiers. The intensity of the insurgency was too great for the Taraki government to control, though, and an out-and-out -out civil war was imminent. Sensing this, Moscow opted to take more extreme steps in holding their new potential satellite in orbit and desperately wished to replace Taraki and Amin with more reliable leaders. Amin was well aware of the Russian displeasure with the regime and sought to seize power while he had the chance in October 1979. To accomplish this, he instigated yet another coup in which Taraki was killed and Amin assumed power. Amin's move not only added to the instability plaguing Afghanistan, but also infuriated Soviet leadership, which began a troop buildup on the border. Within months, it was clear that Amin could not hold the country together, and Red Army columns were rolling over the border accompanied by Spetsnaz. On Christmas Eve, 1979, Moscow decided they had had enough of Amin and removed him from office with deadly force, replacing him with Karmal, who had been waiting in the wings. The invasion was now in full effect. The Soviet invasion and occupation would not go well, to say the least. For 10 years, the Red Army would bring war to the country. Their initial invasion force of 30,000 men ballooned to an occupation force of over 100,000 that could accomplish little more than stalemate. Though the Red Army could reliably retain control of urban and built-up areas, the countryside remained firmly in the hands of the Mujahideen, who had total freedom of maneuver in the hinterlands. The army tried in vain to contain the insurgency, but achieved little in terms of pacification. The Mujahideen could evade the cumbersome Soviet army, and once the United States began providing anti-aircraft platforms, the Russians' most effective weapon, the attack helicopter, became vulnerable. Unable to defeat the Mujahideen on the battlefield, the Soviets began to attack their base of support. They engaged in indiscriminate targeting of rural civilian populations in order to erode support for the insurgents. This resulted in a humanitarian disaster that depopulated the countryside and created millions of refugees who fled to the cities and to neighboring Iran and Pakistan. Ten years of war later, and the Russians had very little to show for their efforts other than economic ruin and 50,000-plus casualties, 15,000 of whom were dead. Afghanistan itself fared even worse. Somewhere in the neighborhood of a million Afghans died, and the country was left on the brink of civil war, with well-armed militias prepared to overthrow the rump government in Kabul.
By the time the Red Army had fully withdrawn, those well-armed militias, the Mujahideen, had essentially surrounded Kabul. It would be another three years before they were able to overthrow the nascent Soviet puppet regime. Once they had secured power, though, it wasn't long before the various centers of influence began to compete with one another, and the country once again resumed its civil war. It was in this maelstrom of lawlessness and violence that the Taliban came to power. The origins of the Taliban are murky and multifaceted. Though the name Taliban, meaning students, only came into use in the early 1990s, its spiritual and geographic roots reach back much further. The very name Taliban betrays the organization's religious origins. The men who would eventually form the Taliban found their inspiration in the religious schools, or madrasas, that were found all across southern Afghanistan and Pakistan. Without descending into too much of a rabbit hole, these schools represented something of an Islamic academic tradition funded by Saudi Arabia and various other influential Sunni interests. Initially established in northern India and Pakistan to instruct students in the ways of Islam, the madrasas formed into two distinct schools of instruction after the partition of India. On the Indian side of the border, the madrasas continued to teach a tolerant, secular form of Islam, whereas on the Pakistani side of the partition, a much more radical school of thought began to emerge. This school taught that Sharia law must be followed, that women must be covered, and that secularism in general was haram. These schools soon spread to Afghanistan, especially the Pashtun South, which shares a common cultural and linguistic bond with Waziristan and Pakistan, where they were extremely influential, especially with orphans. One of these orphans was a boy named Muhammad Omar. Long before he was the one-eyed Amir and Mullah, Muhammad Omar was a fatherless, destitute boy in rural Kandahar. Though his schooling was much less formal than what a child in India or Pakistan would have received, his religious instruction was heavily influenced by ideas coming from those schools. He could hardly read the Quran, but that did not diminish his piety or asceticism. He lived a harsh but simple existence in childhood, but the Soviet invasion would change that. When the first Russian troops entered Afghanistan, Omar would have already been in his mid to late 20s, slightly above prime military age, but still fully capable of fighting. He spent the first few years of the war engaged in religious study and became the mullah of a village called Sangasar, where he established his own madrasa. Despite his position as a religious authority, he apparently continued to refer himself as Talib, or student, to demonstrate that he was always seeking knowledge of God's will. In 1982, though, with the invasion in full tilt, he joined up with the Mujahideen. He would spend the next seven years fighting the Russians, during which time he was wounded several times and lost his right eye. During this time, he developed a reputation as a marksman and a brave soldier. Despite this, he never held any rank or position in the Mujahideen and remained a private soldier throughout. It was not until his return home to Sangasar, after the expulsion of the Soviets, that he would found his movement. Upon returning home, he found that his village was suffering under the heel of a literally rapacious warlord. Enraged by the injustice of the warlord, Omar formed a vigilante group that exacted vengeance upon the warlord's cronies, eventually found and killed the warlord himself after he had kidnapped and raped two young girls. From there, the group's notoriety and fame would grow. Rather than fighting with the other warlords over control of Kabul and the rest of Afghanistan, the Taliban, as they had come to be known, continued to fight crime and corruption, earning them a reputation for piousness and granting them an air of legitimacy. Their first big break would come in 1994 when they were given a contract by the Pakistani government to protect convoy routes into Afghanistan. This gave them a source of money and weapons. They now had the power 
influence, and resources to make a play for control. They were aided by their reputation for rooting out corruption and crime, which made them popular among the people, especially Pashtuns. By 1995, they had captured and controlled Herat in the southwest, and a year later controlled Kabul. By 1998, they had control over as much as 80% of the country and faced little resistance, except for a small coalition of mostly Tajik warlords in the northeast. Mullah Omar was declared Emir of Afghanistan, and the Taliban were now the de facto, if not de jure, regime. This, of course, catches us up with part one when we discuss the initial invasion of Afghanistan by the United States. Having covered Afghanistan's history, I think we now discuss the American war since the fall of the Taliban and the beginning of what could be called the occupation. It's hard to construct a narrative for a war like Afghanistan. Unlike World War II, or other wars characterized by fronts and campaigns and distinguishable events, low-intensity conflicts like that in Afghanistan don't really have large, operational-level maneuver to define them. Instead, they have a sort of an imaginary hourglass figure. There's a lot happening at the tactical level, and a lot happening at the strategic level, but not much at the operational level. Not to say that division and corps commanders didn't play a large part in the fight, but rather that all maneuver took place at the company level or lower. Occasionally you might get large, battalion-sized maneuvers, but only rarely and in extremely critical situations. This means the war has to be described in terms of overarching strategy and small unit tactics, two things that generally are worlds apart, but are inextricably linked in a counterinsurgency. One of those large narrative points comes in the form of the 2009 troop surge initiated by President Barack Obama. Often simply referred to as the surge, it not only offers us a nice narrative fulcrum, but it also represents the war in microcosm. The problems confronted during the surge were the same as those that plagued the entire war, and it forced the U.S. government to face harsh realities. In the years between the fall of the Taliban and the election of Barack Obama, Afghanistan had largely been on the back burner of American foreign policy. Yes, there were American troops there, and the fight against the Taliban and Al-Qaeda continued, but Iraq was the big-ticket item, and that's where America's attention was focused. During that time, the war effort was set somewhat adrift. There was something resembling a counterinsurgency mission aimed at nation-building, but there was no counterinsurgency strategy. This lack of a clear strategy, combined with a deficit of attention from Washington, led to the Taliban to make a comeback and for conditions to deteriorate. This was the Afghanistan that President Obama inherited in 2009. The surge was initially forwarded by Admiral Mullen and Generals McChrystal and Petraeus early in Obama's first term. During his election bid, Obama had campaigned on the idea that Afghanistan was the right war that needed to be fought, but the president had also campaigned on ending the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, so was left with a quandary. He had a war that he needed to fight, but that he also wanted to end. This made the surge attractive to him. According to his military advisors, a troop surge, like that engineered by Petraeus in Iraq, would be the solution to the president's problem. They argued that a surge of 30,000 troops utilizing the army's brand new counterinsurgency, or COIN strategy, would allow enough men to secure population centers in order to foster local governments and civilian goodwill, while freeing up troops to retake territory held by the Taliban. At the same time, they argued, an increased troop presence would accelerate training for the Afghan National Army and the Afghan National Police. Three years later, and the results of the surge were mixed. Three factors prevented the surge from being an out-and-out -out success. First was the problem of Afghan President Karzai, who never bought into the idea of a surge or of counterinsurgency in general. 
This rift between the opinions of Karzai and those of American military officers and diplomats illustrates one of the central questions of the war, should the United States have been involved in counterinsurgency. According to American officials, corruption, criminality, and general incompetence by the Afghan government gave people motivation to join the Taliban, who they remembered as being competent. Karzai, on the other hand, held the view that the Taliban's main source of recruits and money was the ISI. He believed that the United States was wasting its time fighting pitched battles in Helmand when new Taliban fighters and supplies would just flow north from Pakistan. He was also of the opinion that American efforts to reduce corruption among Afghan government officials only impeded on the natural process of Afghan governance. This is an argument that is still had today. Should the United States concern itself with how Afghanistan is governed and by whom? Or should it simply stamp out terrorists where it finds them and leave the governance to the locals? This then leads into the second problem preventing the search from being fully successful, one that we have already discussed somewhat, the influence of Pakistani intelligence. As discussed in part one, the ISI has provided safe haven and even material support for the Taliban. Despite the fact that the US military was fighting the Taliban mercilessly and evicting them from their home turf, they always had some place to retreat to and reorganize in Pakistan. In fact, the harder American forces pressed the Taliban, the more incentive Pakistan had to support them in order to preserve their influence in Afghanistan. Otherwise, without deep influence with the Afghan Taliban, Pakistan lost one of its major sources of leverage over Kabul. Without being able to corner the Taliban, U.S. forces never had a hope of outright destroying it. The third obstacle to success of the surge was the low operational readiness of the Afghan National Army and Afghan National Police, or ANA and ANP respectively. The idea was that extra troops would allow the ANA to get more training, but also more opportunities to operate alongside NATO troops. In reality, this led to ANA soldiers becoming reliant on ISAF, International Security and Assistance Force, soldiers. Rather than sharpening their edge, Afghan soldiers simply let others do all the fighting, leaving them no more prepared to resume responsibility than had the surge never occurred in the first place. This isn't to say that the surge was a failure, but rather that it did not live up to expectations. The United States and her allies did accomplish much during the three years the surge lasted, especially in terms of beating back the Taliban. Helmand province, the opium-ridden heartland of the Taliban, was nearly clear of insurgent activity. In the relative stability provided by a surplus of troops, aid organizations and the State Department were able to complete large numbers of projects. In the country's villages and towns, life was able to take on a sense of normalcy in which people could shop in markets and children could attend schools without worry of suicide bombers or IEDs, improvised explosive devices. The country appeared to be on the right track, albeit extremely reliant on the support of foreign soldiers and money. Of course, all of that progress would be reversed after the surge. The hard-fought gains made during those three years wouldn't disappear overnight, but the problems that reared their ugly heads during the surge would continue to plague the war effort, and American leadership would continue to struggle to find solutions. The question of whether or not counterinsurgency is an effective strategy still has not been answered, but it seems the Obama administration eventually decided that it wasn't worth the cost in blood and treasure. By the end of the administration, regular forces were limited to their train, advise, and assist mission, and special forces stopped targeting Taliban to focus on Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. The problem of Pakistani interference continues to influence the war, though Pakistan has begun to feel the repercussions of wielding the double-edged sword that is the Taliban more acutely of late. Lastly, the morale and discipline issues endemic to the ANA and ANP remain. 
Though they now carry a much larger burden of fighting the war, there are precious few reliable units. The largest component of the surge's short-lived success, though, was the Obama administration's decision to drastically reduce troop levels almost immediately afterward. ISAF's total strength went from roughly 100,000 men in 2011 to 60,000 in 2012 to a combined NATO force of only 13,200 in 2015. Not only did American troops dry up, but so did American support. As troop numbers fell and the American combat mission came to an end, Afghan soldiers could no longer rely on American direct action assistance or close air support, except in the most dire circumstances. This sharp reduction in assistance led to Afghanistan returning to almost the same state it had been in before the surge. Had the Obama administration chosen to invest a little more in Afghanistan for a little longer, the surge may have had a more lasting impact. One benefit they could have capitalized on seems to be that in the surge's wake, ANA units experienced a bump in morale and felt they could take the fight to the Taliban. Despite many of them having rested on their laurels a bit during the surge, they did see that the Taliban was on the run and, with the U.S. military drawing down somewhat, felt they could take some initiative. This is illustrated by an operation taken on by ANA forces in Kandahar who chose to retake the Road of the Martyrs in late 2012. Here, ANA lobbied their American counterparts, the 4th Battalion 23rd Infantry, to help them retake the site of the Battle of Maiwand, as discussed in Part 2. The Taliban had turned the area and the shrine within it into a fortress of IEDs and fighting positions. Over the course of four days, the ANA troops, alongside the soldiers of the 23rd Infantry, cleared bombs and fought off Taliban attacks in order to secure the road. In the end, the operation was a success, and the ANA had demonstrated they could take the initiative when it came to fights they were invested in. These sorts of offensive operations initiated by ANA were, and are, few and far between, though. Generally, ANA are best used to hold ground while Afghan Special Forces act as a countrywide quick response force, providing emergency assistance where it's needed. With the sharp drawdown into the post-surge phase of the war, these sorts of gains couldn't be capitalized on, and the ANA would lose much of their edge. By April 2015, when the town of Kunduz, in the far north near the Tajik border, came under siege by Taliban, the deterioration was severe. For months, the town remained cut off by Taliban forces, which had descended on the area from the surrounding region, and the government in Kabul had been virtually powerless to do anything about it. It wasn't until after the town fell in September that the government was able to mount an effective counteroffensive. The fall of Kunduz represented the sorry state Afghanistan was in at that point, and how much it had de deteriorated since the end of the surge. In the year up to September 2015, Afghan forces had suffered 4,700 KIA and another 7,800 wounded in action. This was in part due to the lack of air support from NATO forces, but also because the government could barely equip or pay its troops. Endemic corruption means soldiers rarely get paid, and soldiers who don't get paid are usually not much good in a fight. The fall of Kunduz marked the beginning of the most recent phase in the Afghan conflict. To recap, the first phase was the initial invasion in which American special forces alongside Afghan militias toppled the Taliban. The second phase was the directionless occupation up to the surge. The third phase was the three-year surge itself, which transitioned to the post-surge phase, which decidedly began with the fall of Kunduz. In the final installment, we'll discuss the war since 2015, where the war is likely going, and finally what we can learn from this longest of American wars. I intend to discuss in depth the assumptions that were made going into the war and how they evolved over time. Before the final episode though, 
we'll hear from several U.S. Army veterans of the Afghanistan war as we discuss their experiences. Hopefully, this will provide some insight into what the war is like on the ground and how what we have discussed influenced day-to-day operations. Until next time, let us all remember the classic blunders. They are never to go against a Sicilian when death is on the line, and, of course, the most famous, never get involved in a land war in Asia.